Welcome to the Why God Why podcast brought to you by Browncroft Community Church. My name is Dylan Carnival and I'm the Browncroft staff and producer of the show. I'm joined today by our host, Peter Englert, the director of adult ministries at Browncroft, and John Amayo, the New York State crew director. Why God Why is a podcast where we ask 21st century questions about God that you never thought you could. And today we have Steve Pelton. He's a professor and a leader here at Browncroft. We're talking about why God, why do Christians think Easter is such a big deal? Hey, thanks, Dylan. Hey, no uh, problem. So, John, you actually like changed this question. I did. Within, we were going to ask, you know, why did Jesus resurrect from the dead? <clears throat> but the reason I like the the change that you made to this question is. Easter has to be one of the weirdest holidays. <laughs> like there's bunnies, yep. there's Cadbury eggs, which I have yet to meet someone that like truly enjoys those. Hmm. Uh, helicopters. Helicopter. Oh, that's right. We're we're doing a helicopter egg drop. So wow. all of a sudden, um, yeah, we just threw that in there. Yeah. All of a sudden now we're talking about Easter. And Christians see it as kind of like the Super Bowl. Mm. I'm not sure if the culture sees it as Super Bowl or just it's a nice in between Christmas and summer. So I, I think this is a great question. Yeah, I mean, I, I I phrased it that way because a lot more and more of the students that I'm talking to don't really. And this is this is not a, to cast shade on them and whatsoever, but it's just to say like they just don't know what Easter really is and or why it is such a big deal. Like, why do Christians celebrate this? Um, so I think it's it's applicable in that way, but it's also applicable for those of us who do claim to be following Jesus to go, oh yeah remind ourselves a little bit why uh, this is a big deal for us, because it's easy to to skip over it and just to ignore it and to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a thing that happened that Sunday. Okay, now I'm on to my next thing. But why is it an important season for us to be celebrating? So I think we got a great person, part of the second time guest club here on the Why God Why podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> Steve Pelton, our friend and resident genius here, is, oh, is here to answer questions for us. So, <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. Oh, this will go very well then. So, yeah. <laughs> Good. The only way to go is down. Yeah, from well. here, so. Wonderful. Well, it's it's great to have you here, Steve. And uh, I I can't think of a, a better person to kind of help us talk through this together, uh, this concept with us. So Thanks. Uh, maybe for those of us who are listening to this and going, yeah, why is Easter such a big deal? Not sure I have a full grasp of it. Can you give kind of a a Cliff Notes version of the concept of Easter for people, kind of a baseline. Here's what Easter's all about. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, I, it is one of those things that I think as we, as a culture, kind of <clears throat> kind of move away from those Judeo-Christian moorings, we assume like, oh, yeah, everybody knows what Easter is all about. But you're right. Most people, like, you know, college students, and, and I I encounter college students all the time, you know, um, we don't usually have these conversations. But, um, but, yeah, I think there's a lot of people who just think, well, there's this Jesus guy, and somehow a bunny you know, is involved with some <laughs> eggs or something, and and you know you go to church and maybe you wear a really colorful hat or something, right? I mean that's mm-hmm. kind of the way it is, and that's about it. And you have a big meal with your grandparents afterwards, and and that's it. So, uh, I, I think it does. It is important to get that kind of baseline, just that foundation. What are we really talking about? So, you know, if you're looking at like the the textbook definition or or some something written up in a encyclopedia for somebody who really doesn't know anything, it all hinges on the character of this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. We all know that, um, but it's it's interesting to see, you know, this whole thing of all of his life and everything he does culminates in this event. And I think that's one of the things for Christians that's central is it's not just this one-off thing, but it's this thing that has been building for a long time and is all involving the character of this guy. Mm. Now, I mean, it's it's interesting because this this messianic figure that we see as Jesus, there are lots of messianic figures around this time, and we'll probably say more about that later. Um, but his story is unique. I mean, he was saying all these things that really were rankling the, all the wrong people or the right people, whatever. Um, so he had this message, but also he was performing these just radical things. I mean, bizarre just really, you know, Pete, you started saying how this is a really bizarre thing. And it is. And I mean, objectively, you look at this and you say, this is a strange thing. And this is a strange character. I mean, there's there's something different about this guy if you believe that he's, you know, um, you know, if, if you look at him and say, oh, he's an interesting guy, but he is strange. And so all of this kind of 
you know, antagonizing the these leadership, whether it's in the Romans or you know the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, um, culminates in this show trial, and we know about this. And they kind of frame him for doing things that technically he kind of did. You know, he did claim to be God, and so um, so they do this. And then um, after he's found guilty, the Romans do what the Romans do best, and they torture him to death. Um, you know, it's not just nail him on the cross. I mean, it's a day long, brutal, just tearing him apart and um, putting him up there. But the interesting thing is that, you know, a couple days later, the the complete opposite of what should happen happens. And all of these characters, you know, his people start saying, no, he's still here. He died, but he came back. And so that's the, you know, kind of that textbook definition, I guess. But, you know, if you're one of those people who maybe like one of the students you see or something who's who's interested in the idea. You know, you might be skeptical. You might be thinking like, all right, well, this is kind of cool. I'm not totally sure if I buy it, but all right. W what you see in the in the Easter story is fascinating because it's far more than just this historical account or this kind of one-off thing where, you know, he was this martyr or he led a, a revolution. I mean, it's it becomes kind of the culmination of everything in the Bible. And frankly, you'd say Jesus ends up being like the culmination or even the embodiment of like all of Jewish custom and culture. Mm. So, I mean, that's what's really, really interesting. So, you know, it's not a coincidence that Jesus's death and then the resurrection takes place on Passover, right? You guys are nodding your heads. You, you know this, but I think a lot of people wouldn't really think about that. But, you know, you think about Passover way, way back, and this is Moses and the Egyptians and, and the Israelites are, are slaves there, and then God promises to take them out of slavery. And, you know, he... um. He does these miraculous events that shock the Egyptians. And the last one is, I'm going to take an angel and I'm going to kill all of those boys, all the first firstborn. But for those Jews, my people, what do you do? You take a lamb, you kill the lamb, you can eat the lamb along with your matzah bread, you know, the bread that's unleavened because this is going to happen really quickly afterwards, right? Um, this is really going to go roll down uh, downhill very quickly. And um, then you take the blood and you put it all over your door and you're going to be spared. And it's interesting that you have this character, Jesus, then who's called the lamb of God, calls himself this, other people call him this. He has this really kind of interesting interaction with his closest friends a day before he's killed, where he's telling them to eat and drink his blood and flesh. I mean, like that's messed up. I mean, what is that all about? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And everybody around, if you read that story, like yeah. everybody around goes, uh, okay, I'm out. Yeah. Like, this is like, messed this up, is, man. This, this is, is really crazy. It is. Yeah. But like it shows you, and then, you know, he is put up there. His blood is spread just like on a door. Right. I mean, that's, and I, I think that's the most fascinating thing for, for those people who are kind of maybe on the outside, but looking in and curious about this to look and see that it's, it's not just like this one-time event. It's not this social movement. It's not this guy who was martyred for a cause. There's something weird going on here. And I think, so when we start looking deeper into what, what does really Easter mean, um, it's a lot more than just kind of this, this guy who was a great guy. And maybe he claimed to be God. Who knows, right? Oh, And then dying and then some people kind of spreading some rumors. There's something really profound profound going on here. And it's one that's, it is hard to explain outside of kind of the, well, what we call the traditional classical, you know, um, story uh, from, from the gospel. I mean, it really is a, it's curious, but it's one of those things that, you know, if you are a Christian too, you, you know, your hair on your arm might stand up on end a little bit. You're like, this is, wow, this is kind of, it's, it's unique, you know, in a really weird way too. So I, I want to come to, you've, brought so much. And I think the biggest thing, so if you're a listener, whether you're, you've never read the Bible and you're a skeptic to all the way to you've read the Bible a thousand times, there, there's something central about Jesus's resurrection yeah. to the whole story of the Bible. Mm -hmm. You know, how would you explain the centrality of Jesus resurrection? And that's before, cause I think a lot of times, you know, I'm thinking about this, we're jumping to, did it really happen? Yeah. But I think the question before is the Bible has a whole bunch of books, mm -hmm. but it's one unified story. What makes Jesus resurrection central to connecting the whole story? Well, you're right. It is these different stories. And sometimes you can look at it and say, okay, well, there is a thread going through all these books. And the thread is God or God loves his people or something like that. 
And, and when I say kind of Jesus and the resurrection is kind of the culmination of all that, it really, when you look at what Isaiah said or, or just the ideas of, you know, kind of the sacrificial system and the need for purification, right? Because God is so holy, you can't be near him. So this is the only way you have a chance of kind of corresponding with him is going through the, all of those kinds of things, the need for shedding blood to, to purify oneself. I'm going all the way back, even before Judaism, before Abraham, to the, the Garden of Eden and how a curse occurred there. I mean, all these things. And then you have Jesus quoting Psalm 22, you know, basically saying, why are you cursing me, God? Mm. On a tree, interestingly enough. You know, I mean, it's it's interesting that that is, ends up being the thread, even more than just like, you know, the thread that winds through all these books is the existence of God or something. I think even more central to that is the thread of sacrifice, reconciliation, and and that, like, it's, it's embodied. I mean, like, literally mm-hmm. embodied in Jesus. And I think that's important, and that's why it was also important, I think, for for theologians in the early church to to emphasize clearly, as we do today, that Jesus was a man and he was divine, because they they saw that as necessary. If we're talking about God reconciling, it's got to be this divine act, but at the same time, it's got to be kind of a human thing because the penalty is put on humanity, right? And so when you look at that, you, th- you think these, this thread that goes through all these different books— these kind of interesting stories and different cultures and everything, you you start to see this thread kind of is tied at the end to Jesus on the cross in kind of a an interesting way if that makes sense. Yeah. So I love I love how you're painting this picture of the whole story of the Bible for us kind of culminating in this event. And I think there's that's got to be compelling for some people who are listening, who might be skeptics, who are like, okay, I, I'm intrigued by what you're saying. I'm intrigued by that. But is this really important mm. for me to be a Christian? Like if I were to decide to follow, say I'm following Jesus, yeah, can I separate that from believing this pretty far out idea that he's raised from the dead? Yeah. Well, well and and I'll even add to that. Can't, can't I just believe the teachings of Jesus? Mm. Like I'll be merciful. Right. I'll, I'll, uh, you know, I'll be a peacemaker, Yeah. you know, and I'll do this, you know, why do I need the resurrection? Well, I mean, look, you can, you can do that. I mean, Thomas Jefferson famously did that. He liked Jesus a lot, but he was a deist and he didn't really buy into all the stuff. So, you know, I have a copy at home, the Jeffersonian Bible, where he went with a knife and cut out all the miraculous stuff and left the rest because he really loved kind of the moral teachings of Jesus. You can do that. And there are tons of churches all over the United States, all over Europe that do that as well. Um, you, you can try that. Now, can you can you be kind of authentically Christian with, with this life-changing faith without the resurrection? I, I would say, boy, that is really hard to do. I, 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 to the point I'd say, I don't think you can do that. I don't think you can. And again, you do have because our tradition tends to be more Protestant tradition, you know, in the United States, at least, you have a lot of um, Protestant traditions that have by and large done that, or to some extent, they said, you know, we really like a lot of this stuff about helping the poor and, and those who are ill and whatever, you know, that's really nice and helping the alien and the, you know, the immigrant and uh, that's great. But the whole, you know, the whole thing about, you know, turning water into wine and, you know, demons and blah, 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 like now, that's just ridiculous. Now you look at that and you say, are these, vibrant, growing communities, not really for the most part. Now, you can't make that assumption for everybody, of course. But I think the point is, what kind of faith do you have if you don't have the resurrection, you know, and if you don't have a divine Jesus? I guess maybe I'd rephrase it it and say, why would you want that kind of thing? I mean, like, I'm not getting out of bed on a Sunday morning for that. I'm not. I mean, for the same thing, I can go to Barnes and Noble and I can pick off pretty much any self-help book and I can find a lot of really good stuff there that mirrors a lot of that. That's, that's cool. But I'd rather play golf on Sunday morning. I mean, I'll just be honest. I mean, why, why would I want to, why would I want to give my money? Why would I want to like send, you know, my family or something overseas to help people in a hospital or, or even just help my neighbor move? Like, why, why would I need to do that? I mean, I, I just don't, to me, I look at this and say, what real ultimate relevance or life change are you going to get when you have just the moral teachings? They're good. They're really good. They're really good. But if that's it, you know, 
I can get that from anybody else. I mean, there's a lot of people who have come through over the years and there are people now who, who say some wonderful things, great stuff, and they don't claim to be divine or anything like that. And I think, oh, what's the big deal? Why don't I just go with them? I, the difference is this, this supernatural quality of the whole thing. It's ultimately you cannot do, you can't do the change that needs to be changed in your life. You can't do that on your own. You can try. But it's like, you know, holding in a sneeze or something. Eventually, you know, you just can't, can't do it anymore. And um, you need that you need that life change that is ultimately from outside of you. Um, that can't just be a self-help guru or a politician or a social leader or something like that. You know what I mean? I, 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 the more the question is like, why would you want that kind of kind of denuded kind of anemic faith? With John's permission, I'm going to go a little bit off topic here. Well, just so... <clears throat> Where, where I'm really interested to hear, so I'm a skeptic. There's four versions of Jesus's resurrection. There's four, we call them gospels. There's yeah. also biographies about Jesus. Uh, so there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the first four books of the New Testament. And the four of them have four different perspectives. I mean, you can align some of it. Yeah. So the last question, thinking of the last question of what you just brought up, what are some of the similarities but also differences of how these writers of of Jesus's resurrection see that and how does that affect us because what you're saying is without the resurrection of Jesus like you know Jesus is just another Tony Robbins yeah. you know he's another self-help but like the writers of Jesus's resurrection are saying no, like if you don't stop here. So maybe just, you know, riff a little bit about, you know, the four versions of that kind of the similarities and differences and why that matters so much. Well, I mean, yeah, the similarities and those are pretty easy. I mean, you have Matthew, Mark and Luke are very similar. That's why they call them the synoptic gospel because they're very, very similar in how they kind of were put together. And there's a lot of reasons for that. They probably drew from certain, you know, eyewitnesses that were similar and certain, you know, kind of testimony that were more similar. Whereas John's was most likely written much later when John was probably an, an old man, um, probably later in the um, first century. And his is different. Now, um, the differences don't concern me as much because I think if all, you know, all of us were witnessing some sort of big event, whether it was a cataclysmic event or just you know, um, we want to hear a speaker or something like that, we would have very different perspectives and you would focus on the people around him. And John, you, you know, you'd focus on, on how he looked and what his clothing looked like or whatever. And I'd look at, and I'd listen to this and I, I kind of, it's different. I mean, that's, I, I think that there is an element of added kind of reliability when you have some difference, because if they're all the same completely, then people can look at that and say, well, clearly there was a bit of a conspiracy here. You know, they wrote these intentionally and it's a little too perfect, right? Um, and so like even the synoptics, they're very similar, but there are those differences. You know, they have some wording that might be a little different. And John's is different. Now, um, John's is unique. And I think that that's one of my favorite ones. I really like, I like the um, John's account. Um, you know, you can kind of imagine him as an old man kind of looking back on his life and and really pondering this for a long time and, and, and focusing on something different different, you know, and, and John does. I mean, and it's not just the resurrection account throughout the whole book. His is more spiritual, is more philosophical. It's just, it's, it's, it's different. Um, it, it, it is. And I, I, don't, I don't, I'm not concerned about some of those differences. They really, they don't bother me that much. I think that they can add to the reliability. Now, what are the similarities? Well, the similarities are he was literally tortured to death by the Romans. Um, and he literally rose from the grave and there were actual people who were close to him, who witnessed an empty tomb. Now, you know, people say, well, this one guy saw one angel and then she saw two and then blah, blah, blah. I mean, I think you're looking for a reason to say, oh, this is a bunch of bunk. Uh, I'm not concerned about that because again, if we all go to the same speech, we're going to see things um, it may be radically different too, right? Um, but those similarities, that's inescapable. How these different gospel writers viewed Jesus is clear what they thought of him was clear. It wasn't like Mark was like, eh, maybe he's divine, maybe, you know, or maybe he's just really cool, but it is nothing like that. It's very clear he claimed divinity and he was basically accused for it and killed and then rose, bodily rose, you know, and, and that was, that's key because 
not long after this, as the church is growing, you had a number of kind of these movements within the church that started questioning things like that, like the bodily resurrection. And they looked at John's and said, well, we have to look at this spiritually or something like that. But the reality is you really have to do some kind of hermeneutical gymnastics to come to something like mm. that, because that is just not what these accounts say. They're very, it's unambiguous there. You know, it's very, very clear. And I think that's really what matters. You know, you can say, uh, you know, I'm not sure about you know, what happened in the temple or, you know, the dead bodies rise and walk around. You know, I mean, there's these kind of weird cryptic things that go on in some of these accounts. But ultimately, what matters most is bodily death, bodily resurrection. And that's what they all have in common. Well, and just even one of the reasons I bring that up, and John, I'd be curious, you know, maybe this could be the little feeling section where we say which which gospel account is our favorite. <laughs> like Mark's my favorite, because when you get to Mark 15 at the end of the story, you know, you'll see a little note that the, I believe it's past verse eight, they added scripture into it because Mark's gospel ends with an empty tomb and that's it. Boom, that's it, yeah. And and like, I think, I love what you're saying too about this in the gospel because the gospel writers had different purposes for telling that story. Mark, at the end of it, it's saying, do you believe this or not? And like, I look at even, you know, with the gospel of John, it's almost like John is writing it to say, this is the end of the story. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think about that too. That's something we miss from the first century. We're so busy trying to David McCullough, the re resurrection. I, <laughs> I love, I love David McCullough. That's maybe, yeah, maybe, I like that. maybe, maybe that makes me a nerd, but, <laughs> but like David McCullough does all these biographies. And in the 21st century, we're so we're so like minute by minute, journal by journal, but yet we love memoirs and memoirs a majority of the time are true, but there's a purpose of why they're telling it. And I, I look at Mark and when I land at the resurrection, it's yes, this is real, but do you really believe this for your life? I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, John, or just? Well, yeah, I mean, I think a couple, uh, I love Matthew in general, the flow of Matthew. I, 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 when I, before I became a Christian, I started reading Matthew more intently and it, Jesus seemed to pop off the page at me with me and Matthew, just like, oh my goodness, he is so different than I, than I imagined. But when it comes to this story, I love the way that John frames this story and how much attention he gives to this and some of the nuance of characters that he gives to this. And he brings himself into it in a couple of different yeah. spots. Yeah. Um, so it is almost like you're describing, Steve, like this, this firsthand account from him looking back on his life, like even him rushing to the tomb, yeah, like yeah. along with Peter, except for Peter beats him. You know, yeah. I mean, there's like, <laughs> it's like this, it's like this reflecting back, like of someone who's been there. Yeah. Uh, it's really a cool story. But at the same time, all of them, um, and, and to a lesser extent, some of them, you know, because uh, Marx is a little less detailed in certain areas, but John certainly and some of the others, they all... They all carefully frame this, though, because they, you know, within the greater context of Jewish history, tradition, culture, religion, the Old Testament, they all recognize that this is something significant and timeless that goes back, that started at the beginning, the beginning, you know, way back then. And, um, and it really is this kind of culmination of all this stuff, all this expectation, all this excitement. And, you know, at this time... There was a lot of this messianic expectation. This is Second Temple Judaism, and they were they hated the Romans and they wanted them out. And there were these messiahs that would pop up, you know, and um, usually be killed off. There were a bunch of them. There were a significant number, you know, Simon Bargoria and Simon um, uh, Bar Kokhba. I mean, these guys were like brutal tyrants. You know, they would fight and kill and do all this horrible. And um, so this was kind of where they grew up is is in this with this expectation. They tell this story that is just. It, it's not the way you, you tell a story about a Messiah, you know? Like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. The Messiah, come on, guys. We know Isaiah talks about it, and you know, all these people talk about it. Like, he's supposed to be hardcore, and he's going to come, and he's going to cleanse. And cleanse means bloodshed. It means we're going we're gonna to rip these guys apart. And you had actually characters like that. But these guys say, this is the clear Messiah, mm. even though it's not the story you expect us to tell. And what's really fascinating is... You know, talk about something that I think really adds the reliability to all of this stuff is that that's the one that sticks. You know, I mean, that's really 
intriguing. I mean, so you have these these different characters. You know, thirty five years after Jesus is there, you have you know um, the zealots and these other groups that that um, you know, revolt against the Romans, and it's a brutal civil you know or civil war insurrection. You know, countless thousands are killed, and but every time you had one of the and then their leader was brought up to Rome and he was beheaded there, and you know, and it was over, it was done. Nobody, nobody, any of their friends jumped up later and said, "Well, Simon's really he's alive," you know, or like his ghost has inhabited us, or nothing like that, nothing. But the one story that these guys tell that's like contrary to what common sense seems to be the way you tell it. They're the ones who say, oh, yes, and he has risen bodily, which some Jews believed was possible, others did not, and now my life has completely changed. And somehow, especially amidst persecution and a culture that didn't like this church and, you know, at various times, especially in those first three centuries or so, it grows. Like, that, again, is not supposed to happen. If you're going to start a social movement, that's not what you do. You don't yeah. do it, you know? And so it's, yeah. that's fascinating. That's leading to me to, to another question, which is following up on that, because so far we've been talking kind of <clears throat> inside baseball a little bit, yeah. you know, like, okay, let's base this on the Bible. Let's, you know, let's look at these accounts. You know, as you look back historically, someone curious from the outside who might be drawn into this, like, okay, the Bible says this, but are there any other reasons why extra biblically we should believe that? that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Or yeah. even something happened. Yeah. 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 And I think that's the way to frame it. It's it's not as much, you know, where's the evidence that Jesus rose? Mm -hmm. Show me, and I've heard people say this, like, show me the video footage, like, right. give me a break, come on. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, DNA evidence, it didn't happen, all right? It, um, but is there evidence, like historical evidence, for something profound, something even earth-changing, happening in around that third decade of the first century? Yeah, there is. There's definitely evidence. Now, you know, do with it what you what you want, but you do have extra biblical um, writers who mention Jesus in one capacity or another. So clearly enough that he he had a significant following of some sort. So you know, the best known is Josephus, Flavius Josephus, who was this great Jewish historian, and he was part of the rebellion against the Romans, and somehow he kind of finagles his way into a Roman pension, and he retired in Rome. I don't know how he did that, but. Um, but he wrote like assiduous detail about the history of the Jews in his book, The Antiquities. And so he's writing about Pontius Pilate and, and everything. And then he goes and he starts writing about Jesus. Now, admittedly, what he writes about Jesus probably was kind of adulterated over the years and changed maybe by some Jewish or some Christian um, editors, probably. Mm. But he talks about, because he talks about like Jesus was this guy. He was this wonder worker and teacher and <clears throat> people loved him. And, and then because of what he said, he was killed. And, and then... Somehow he rose from the grave, and he still has followers today. And Josephus is not going to write that. So, but it's highly likely that he did write something about Jesus, and maybe even about his impact. And you have a couple of Roman, you know, pagans. Um, <clears throat> Suetonius writes the, is it uh, the twelve twelve Caesars? You know, it's a very famous thing about the um, the, the first twelve Caesars, and he's writing about Claudius, I think. And he's talking about the Jews being expelled from Rome, which seems to maybe mirror something that happens in the New Testament, perhaps. Because of Christus, he says, and that may have been just a Latin version of Christ or Christ, you know, Christus, and so it seems like that probably was maybe evidence of the Jews and the Christians fighting and sparring in Rome um, to the point that they got kicked out. But but there seems like there is evidence there of this character of significance. And Tacitus later and early in the second century says something like that too. The, uh, Nero at the time, this is around like when Paul um, Paul was probably martyred under Nero. They think. Um, but he, uh, you know, he talks about how Nero persecuted Christians and he would burn them like giant torches when he would eat dinner. I mean, just a ghastly thing. But they talk kind of about that, like why? You know, this character Jesus who they all followed, you know, that. So there is evidence of, of this significant character, you know, and I think, and, and also in some cases that, that there was maybe a supernatural element to him. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Something that you wouldn't get with some of these other kind of wannabe messiahs that are written about by Josephus. And so I think there is something there. But look, the best evidence, I think, is really just what happened with this church. It wasn't supposed to happen this way. I mean, you don't start a movement where you have no power, no political power, no social capital. Like, think about what was the first church. The leaders are these guys who have limited education at best, 
those are hardworking guys. You know, they're just blue collar guys. You know, the equivalent would be like, you know, uh, guys working in a refinery or coal miners or, you know, stacking boxes at Walmart, you know, average guys who work hard. And somehow they become these leaders who travel as far, we think, as India. St. Thomas, they think, may have died in India, um, <clears throat> one of the apostles. But they somehow become the the focal point of this new movement. And the movement grows largely among, like, the peasantry at first. It doesn't, not forever, you know, Paul comes along and Barnabas and some other, you know, wealthier people. But by and large, that's the way it is. Like, that's not what you do, especially if, especially if your Messiah was embarrassed on a cross like a criminal. I mean, think about that. He didn't have the honorable death of Paul, which was beheading. That was the honorable way to go, you know, at least by the Romans. Um, no, he was like shamed and embarrassed and ridiculed. Mm -hmm. And all those beautiful Renaissance pictures of Jesus on the cross, you know, that, that's nothing. I mean, he was a piece of raw meat up there, stark naked, you know, losing bowel function and everything. I mean, that's Jesus. That's what it was. And he died, like in the ghastliest way possible. And then this movement jumps, you know, emerges and just continues to grow and continues to grow 2,000 years later. Look, that I think is the clearest evidence of something happening in around that third decade of the first century. Because if you are that skeptic and you're like, oh, I just don't buy this. I, I understand. We're talking about something that is really kind of crazy sounding. But... I don't know what other evidence you have for this movement that ends up changing people's lives, like radically changing people's lives. And it's not the self-help book that they're getting from the shelf, right? I mean, it's not that. They really believe that somehow the spirit of this man who lived and died is now in me and has changed who I am. Like that is, that's remarkable. And I think if, you, if you're skeptical of that, I understand, but we need to come up with a better a reason then. You know? So I, I kind of want to go, um, <clears throat> by the way, philosophy professor so i don't teach much philosophy anymore but thank you you know, yeah. you know <laughs> philosophy you you love philosophy but you know so we're gonna have an interview in a couple episodes um on deconstruction so right now oh yeah that's good stuff yeah <laughs> not, not good stuff it's interesting i don't think it's good but yeah so i mean so you've obviously read you know and heard of these christian leaders deconstructing and i feel like where many of them land is like agnostic mm -hmm. like i've seen some that they land atheist but in some ways they're like i'm gonna leave the door open yeah and so i guess as you think about this philosophically the resurrection of jesus easter being true you know what philosophically makes sense about the resurrection and maybe what makes sense to be an agnostic but what doesn't make sense based on the christian story because it's like you're talking with people that are saying, you know, they're they're finding the the usual holes in the Bible, like none of this is really real. And I'm sure some of our listeners are kind of going through this. Sure. But yeah. what do you lose philosophically if the resurrection isn't there? Well, I mean, I think you lose, I mean, there's probably a lot you can say about that. There is, I'm sure. But one of the things that comes to mind is I think you really lose any hope of real connection with the divine. Um, every religion, one way or another, and even those religions that are more philosophies than religion, you know, like Buddhism or something, um, what's the ultimate goal, right? I mean, it's, we're kind of messy, dirty, gross, material people, right? We all know that, um, but uh, we want to somehow reach the transcendent, right? Mm. That God, the God beyond, right? And Islam is about that because God is transcendent. He's not going to condescend to us or something in Judaism, Christianity, and lots of other religions have this kind of, you know, broadly speaking, and not even just religion. I think, you know, you see this in Plato and, and right, the, you know, I'm looking for the, the world of the forms and, and things like that. I and mean, there's this real desire to, to reach beyond oneself and, and kind of touch the transcendent. That seems like a human yearning almost. And I think, sapping Christianity of the kind of the incarnation first, I'd say, because you can't have an incarnation or you can't have a resurrection without an incarnation. You can't have Easter without Christmas. Um, you know, sap with getting rid of that, because essentially what we're saying in saying that the resurrection wasn't really real is we're saying the incarnation also wasn't really real. I think we're getting rid of the best opportunity to touch God or maybe more specifically to have God touch us. 
And I really do think that. It doesn't mean that you can't have a, you know, mystical experiences or you can't be spiritual or something like that. I think you can, but if you really are, are hungry for this and, and, and you really want, you, you know there's something out there and, and you really want that, I think the, the, the story of Jesus is the best opportunity you're going to get the, clear, the, the, the kind of the fullest picture of this kind of thing, because it's not just God coming to earth as in the incarnation. It's very, very intentional why he does that. And that's to also take care of our problems. You know, we're the messy, gross, bad people, whether we call that sin or frailty or whatever we may say. And his incarnation was intentionally to deal with that, mm. you know? And, and I think if you lose that, then you really don't have you know, Christ forgiving you. And do you really have the connection with the divine, with God that you so hunger for? And I, people would argue, well, yeah, definitely. I still do. I don't know though. I don't know. I think you're going to, it's not going to be the full picture. I think that God really does intend, if that makes sense. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Man, and, and I think we can bring this. I think that's such a, a great, um, just, snapshot of of the realities you know and i think i think one thing that that in this deconstruction conversation and i'm looking forward to having that combo coming up here in a couple episodes is that um we in a way in our society in western worldview now i was just having a conversation with a buddhist chaplain two days ago yeah. and we're wonderful conversation actually. Mm -hmm. And because there was so much we could agree on in terms of how the enlightenment has actually transformed the way we view religion Yeah, yeah. in that, in that now we, we look at religion as like, Oh, something else that we can prove scientifically. Mm -hmm. And unless I can explain everything away, yeah. then I can't believe. Yeah. I can't believe in this system or that system if I can't explain it scientifically, which is very much a, a an enlightenment. Oh yeah, definitely mindset. Definitely, yeah. It goes back to the Greeks as you were referring, and um, but there in intrinsically there's a mystery involved mm -hmm. in in every religion. There's there's this acknowledgement that there is something that we can't fully grasp. Yeah, yeah. In our minds, and I can't. We can't get around it. Mm. But Christianity is. Even though it's unbelievable, it's still applicable to me as I yeah. look at it. It's like this: there's something that is mind blowing here, but yet this has an impact on my life. And, yeah, yes, and that's clear. I mean, through right. two thousand years of history, that's clear that it has had an impact. And you can well, people will then throw back at you, "Well, it had a bad impact too." Well, right. of course, but show me the religion or even your religion that you know it wasn't brutal at times. They're all they all have been. But you're right; it has changed lives for now thousands of years mm -hmm. and and that can't be discounted right so so getting practical and even personal with this how would you say the resurrection has impacted your life oh boy um yeah i i grew up in the church you know i said the sinner's prayer or whatever it was i said back when i was probably five or six years old so i grew up mm -hmm. this way so i I was having a conversation with my dad, I think a couple months ago about this because he was the same way, you know, my parents grew up in the church and, and we didn't have those kind of conversion stories. Right. And so it's not, I, I don't have that story of you know, the impact of the cross was I gave up everything bad and I became different or, you know, my, my heart just completely changed or something like that. I mean, I, I think I'm much better. We were talking about this. I think I'm much, we're much better than if we never were Christians in the first place. Oh yeah. I think we're better people, husbands, fathers, et cetera. Um, but I, I try to think about the, yeah, the impact it's had this lasting impact. And, um, you know, th there's a couple, a couple passages, um, from the gospels come to mind, one from the, the synoptics and then one from John, um, from the synoptics, it's, uh, Jesus dies and and there's this kind of earthquake type thing. And then you hear, you see this um, kind of almost in passing. It's, and then the veil was torn from top to bottom. And then it goes on. Like, all right, whatever. And then in John, you know, Mary Magdalene goes and she tells the disciples and Peter and John go and they see that it's an empty tomb. And then Mary, uh, she goes back in and what does she see? She sees two guys, mm. the head and the foot of where Jesus should be. And I think those two images have always stuck with me. And, and, and the reason is, they, they really talk about the idea of, of God being, I don't know if it's 
sounds silly, trite to say like now being approachable or something. But when you think about it, like the veil, what did that mean? The veil was there because that's where God resided in the Holy of Holies for for you know, many, many you know, um, centuries and everything. And that veil was torn. And that seems very symbolic, right? That you don't need this whole system of purification. You don't need the system of professional religious people anymore. God wants to know you. And then with a John one, you have these two men there, two angels, and Jesus is not there. What does that represent? Well, that's a clear connection to the Ark of the Covenant. You know, we all know that from Indiana Jones, right? <laughs> but the, the mercy seat where the two angels were, in between was God's footstool where he was supposed to reside in the Holy of Holies. And he's not there anymore. And then lo and behold, you know, she turns around and she sees the gardener. Hmm. You know, Genesis 3 again, right? But no, it's Jesus. This idea that God wants to be approachable, he, he's, that's kind of his desperate plea is for me to approach him. I don't need all of these different things, you know? I mean, I, I, that's something that um, kind of seemingly like throwaway passages that we often just kind of overlook. And I, they've just struck me over the years. And I thought, boy, that, there's something to that. This idea that like, it, this was culture shaping, culture changing, but it really indicated that like the, the Lord of the universe, and that was a clear indication there, you know, John is saying, Jesus is God, by the way. You know, that's what he's saying there. Um, the Lord of the universe is approachable. And I think, like what you were saying, John, about, you know, in kind of more of our postmodern age when, you know, people are trying to explain away religion or they were and now we're kind of left now in this void of what do we do. Ultimately, though, we still want that that transcendent. We want to reach out. And, and I think that is, for me, God is saying, I created the universe and I want you to be a part of this. You know, I want, and I think there's something really profound there. And I, for years, I read over those and didn't really think much about it. And then I thought, there's something significant there, you know? So, yeah. Well, and, you know, I think, John, I think you and I should answer that because, you know, <clears throat> all three of us um, in this conversation, I think Dylan's got a little different story than than all of us, but, um, you know, we've grown up in the church. And I think when I think about the resurrection meaning something different to me, when I've doubted God, it wasn't because like I envy people that doubt God because of Genesis one to three, like the science and stuff like that. I mostly, I wouldn't say I doubt God's goodness. I doubt that God likes me, mm. you know? So like I can resonate with the agnostic yeah. that says God's impersonal and Every once in a while he's for you, but mm. don't expect it. But I think what the resurrection says is, is God loves you and God likes you. And the only way that I can really just kind of explain it now, like I still, there's days where I still feel like I'm eight years old. And if I didn't read my Bible or pray today that like God likes like looking down at me and like, oh, yeah. what's your problem? But, you know, the days that, like, I pick up my daughter and, like, she's – so when she turned two, she started this, like, fake cry. Like, I <laughs> – she just – it's just this fake, you know, like, she's not even tearing up and it's kind of – and my love for her in in essence doesn't change. Even my likability of her, like, doesn't change. Like, I still – and – probably the most spiritual thing that's happened to me is having her to realize, yes, God really likes me. And I even see that in times of like, I'm really sorry that this is difficult for you, but if I don't make you eat your broccoli here, we're going to pay for it five years down the road. And I've, I've seen that time and time. So I look at the resurrection as, I mean, I don't want it to sound trite, but God, you know, Steve said it so eloquently, like God wants to be with you. I think I'm seeing it as God does like you. Maybe delight is a better word. I don't know. What about you? Yeah. I mean, even though I grew up in the church, it wasn't something that I really decided to follow until after college. So for me, a lot of my life was spent trying to make sense of what I saw versus who Jesus really was. Mm. Not that I was outwardly rejecting him because I always found him fascinating, but I really felt like there was a disconnect between what I saw in people and who Jesus was. Mm -hmm. 
and it took me a while. So only recently have I have I even looked back on that time in my life as a sort of deconstruction, if you will, like having to disassemble who Jesus is structurally from what I'm seeing and who he really is. And I remember that moment, Steve, what you're describing is really the power of the resurrection, this supernatural kind of power. And I remember that moment in which I I said to Jesus in the most uneloquent way you ever could, basically, here's my life. You can do with it whatever you want. Mm -hmm. I experienced... And and I know this isn't the case for everybody, but I, I experienced this supernatural like boom. It like hit me this supernatural sense of wow, there is something different mm. about me right now. That's awesome. You know, and I just I just started crying in the moment and I had to go look in the mirror because I thought I was physically looked different, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was just a, the weirdest thing in the world. But I, 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 that was a gift to me because it was like, no, John, okay. I want you to, to know that what you've experienced your whole life in many ways, it isn't exactly who I am. I want to show you a bit of my power. Mm. And I think that's what the resurrection is. It's, it's Jesus saying, no, you know, you may have these conceptions about who I am, but let me show you who I really am. Let me show you my power. And um, yeah. yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing for us to realize. Wow. I, um, man, Steve, this was so much easier than the heaven and hell one, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that one was fun though. I like yeah. that. So. <laughs> well, so let's, um, I think this is a good segue. Um, you know, the question we always ask is what does Jesus have to do about it? I think we've hinted and got there, but I, I do think it's important to take one final swing. So last time I made John go first, so I'm going to take it this way, but uh, I'll start and then you finish. Or well, yeah. we'll start. We'll uh, whatever. Just point to me and yeah. tell me to talk. So. John, John's a good, or uh, Steve's a good friend. John's yeah. a good friend too, I should say, but you know, I'm we're getting, all good friends. You here. know, yeah. we're, we're, we're all good. So, um, when, when I thought about this episode, I thought about Thomas. So John's gospel, as we've brought up, there's this story about this disciple that basically says, um, I'm not going to believe until I, I touch and I see Jesus. And I, I think about all of you that are listening right now and how many of you are saying, I won't believe until I can physically touch or know Jesus. And, and, and I just, I'm not going to try to convince you. I'm not going to try to tell you all the historical places or, but I, I just, I wonder how God has made himself real to you in this sense of the God who is the gracious God of the universe loves you so much that even in the Holy scriptures, he's big enough for your doubt. Mm. Like the gospel writers, whether you want to say it's real, whether you want to say it's, you know, just, it's a nice story. Like they anticipated the doubt that you'd experience. And, and the, the verse that's just so powerful is blessed are those who have not seen, but yet mm -hmm. believe. And so as I think about this message about Easter, I think about how powerful it is that that the Easter message is big enough for those who doubt. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's mm -hmm. a great, that's great. Yeah, great way to put it. And I, I guess I I'm kind of looking at this from from another angle too, and it's maybe an angle of people who say, yeah, yeah, I believe that, whatever, and then just kind of go on with life, you know. Um, so I, I kind of want to talk to to you if that's where you're at today, where you're like, well, yeah, yeah, that's nice. I'll go to church on Sunday and that'll be great. And then I'm going to move on to the, for the rest of my life, you know. Um, Paul puts it this way, you know, and I'm just paraphrasing him here, but he just says, if, if the resurrection didn't occur, we should be the most pitied people in all the world, mm -hmm. you know, um, because what we're living for is crazy. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then it's much better to go play golf on Sunday morning, like yeah. legit. And and I want to be real about that. Like if he didn't, then then that's legit. Then yeah. if, if he doesn't have that kind of power, if all we're following, as you said, Pete, is another Tony Robbins, 
then, then I got better things to do. But if Jesus is who he says he is, then maybe that should change the way that I, mm. I live my life. Maybe that should change the way that I interact with him. And maybe that should change the way that I, I kind of say, yeah, I, you have everything, every part of my life or not. So um, that's a sobering thing. It's, it's very serious. But at the same time, I think if we claim to follow Jesus, we need to look at that fairly too. So, Steve? Um, you know, I, whatever you think about Mel Gibson, um, he, he did a great service to people in, in that movie, The Passion of the Christ. And for me, it, it struck me, the first movie I ever saw three times in the theater because it was just so powerful. But it was, it was look what I did for you. That's kind of the message I get from Jesus in that. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a place in that movie, and this is not in the Bible, but it's Mary is trying to sop up her son's blood. And Pontius Pilate's wife comes with these like linens and helps her. And it's like, that's literally the blood that he shed for us. It's mm -hmm. like in pools all over the ground. And I mean, that movie really brought to, to mind like the Renaissance paintings didn't have it right. I mean, this was, it was brutalized. And I thought, I think, look what I've done for you. I've done this. So you don't need to, to be punished. You don't need, you deserve to be punished, but you, you're not going to be because I'm doing this. And, and there was a, I, uh, I just spoke a couple of weeks ago at the Sunday evening fellowship and, and one of the things I mentioned there, so it's on the brain, was um, John Stott, the great Anglican priest and, and writer, um, he had this thing in like a, it was in like a, uh, you know, a Bible study or something. But he mentions this thing about being in a Buddhist temple. And he says, you know, I've done this many times and I've looked at these Buddhas and, and they're very serene and, you know, eyes uh, closed, legs folded. Um, he always says, the ghost of a smile across his face. And he says, eventually I have to turn. And then my mind goes to the man who was brutalized on the cross. And I'm paraphrasing. He says, all that stuff, all the agony, all the torture, all the brutality done. He says, that's the God for me. That's the one I want, you know. Um, and and I, I think that's something that strikes me about the the whole death and resurrection is, look what I did for you. Mm. I did all this stuff. And believe me, you're never going to understand even a fraction of how bad it was because it's not just physical torture but mental and spiritual. But look what I did for you. And I think there's something there like, wow, that that puts everything in perspective. That is, that's huge. Mm. Wow, what an episode. Um, this is dropping the Thursday before Easter. Um, I believe in the church calendar, it's Monday, Thursday. So we hope that this helps prepare you. And who knows, you might even find yourself going to a church. If you're in the Rochester area, we'd love to see it at Browncroft. If not, um, we'd love to connect you. So uh, go to whygodwhypodcast.com. Uh, you can find us on social media. That's Facebook. Uh, WGW Podcast, also on uh, Instagram and Twitter. As I would say, leave us a five-star and write a nice review. As John would say, if you really feel uh, it, leave us a good review. Um, <laughs> but uh, we uh, just so value your time, and we hope that during the season that you encounter the resurrection of Jesus. Have a wonderful day. Mm -hmm.